Chapter 12. What can the church do? We often forget that the church can do something. That's not meant entirely as a criticism. We've seen so many churches go liberal and become irrelevant. Or maybe we haven't seen any that do much of anything. Think for a moment. How many churches in your community take a stand as a church? Not many, I'll bet. I know that in my town, the largest churches are usually the most compromised. They won't take a position on abortion. They won't get involved in the Christian education battle. But maybe we don't consider the church because we're so used to thinking in terms of individuals. Do you know of any books or tapes that talk about, quote, how the institutional church can change society? End quote. How ironic. Americans are an extremely religious people. I've pointed out that the church is the single largest organisation, however fragmented, in America. At a number of places, I've seen suggested that the church can do more than an individual. Why is this? Hear the words of Christ. Quote, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. End quote. Matthew chapter 16 verses 18 to 19. He didn't say he would build his political party, his family, his Christian school system, his tract society, his satellite radio network, or his corporation. He said, I will build my church. Hades will not be taken by the society of Christian joggers, Christian publishers, or Christian movie producers. We should keep in mind that Christ is talking about the church as an institution, not a bunch of individuals floating around. Hell will not prevail against the institutional church. The fact is that many individuals will fall, but not the church as the church. Having said this, let's put the words about binding and loosing in the institutional church context. Individuals don't bind and loose. The church does. An individual may act on behalf of the church, but that's the point. He's not doing it, or should not be doing it, as an individual. It's the church that will overpower the kingdom of darkness. How? Christ destroys hell with keys. Immediately after Christ promises that hell can't stand against the church, he tells Peter that he has been given keys to bind and loose. What do keys do? They open and shut doors. So, by the mere power of opening and shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven, hell is destroyed. What are these keys? There are three things that open and shut the door of the kingdom of heaven. One, preaching of the word of God opens and shuts the door. Paul says, quote, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? 
and how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. End quote. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. 2. The sacraments of baptism and communion open and shut the door. Communion, for example, can serve the function of shutting the door. Paul says, quote, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. End quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. 3. Discipline opens and shuts the door to the kingdom. It can open the door in that it retrieves a wayward brother. James says, quote, Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Discipline can also shut the door in an attempt to restore. Paul says, quote, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. End quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. So, the church, and the church alone, is given the power of the keys with preaching the sacraments and discipline it destroys hell the program for returning ownership of the family back to the rightful trustees therefore turns on these three keys if the church is going to affect the state it's going to have to use these keys there's simply no other biblical way in the following i would like to outline several things in each area that would change the church and consequently change society. That is, if we are to believe that it is the institutional church that destroys hell, then the change will have to come from the keys given to it. Here is what the church can do. True prophetic preaching. Too often prophecy is viewed only as telling something that will happen in the future. Certainly, this is one aspect, but telling what will happen should be kept in the proper context. The fourth telling is always in a judicial setting. It announces judgment. When Jonah went to Nineveh, for example, he told them what would happen if they did not repent. Here is what he said. Quote, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. End quote. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. What did he mean? Jonah told them that God was going to judge them for their sins if they did not repent. 
This is what we lack in our culture. Soft core salvation. A few weeks ago, I saw one of the nation's leading evangelists on a television talk show. The interviewer was definitely not a Christian. He came right out and asked the evangelist if he thought that AIDS is a judgment sent by God. The evangelist said, No, God wouldn't do such a thing. Odd, isn't it? This evangelist believes that God will send millions and perhaps even billions of people to hell for all eternity to be forced to tolerate screaming, intolerable agony and loneliness forever, without hope forever. But God wouldn't send a few thousand homosexual perverts the plague of AIDS as a warning to them and others of judgment to come. Compared to hell, AIDS is a nickel and dime sort of judgment. But the evangelist is afraid to admit in public that God judges sinners in history as a down payment on future eternal judgment or to warn them about the coming external judgment. God's judgments are somehow outside of history. It's pie in the sky, by and by. And it's boil in the oil, in the soil. But for the present, judgment is all very distant. Why? AIDS is no more a judgment of God than, say, herpes. With respect to his doctrine of history, our evangelist is a liberal and a wimpy liberal at that. Liberals don't want God's judgment in history either. Such judgment points to hell, and this is the offending doctrine for liberals, also for atheists. History belongs to man. In our society, there is usually no connection between what happens in the world and God's law. This vital cause-effect relationship has been lost. Consequently, the concept of judgment has been lost. Sure, there is a place to preach the love of God, but someone cannot understand the love of God until he knows about hell and judgment. It's like knowing about cleanliness without a doctrine of dirt. It's only when men understand what they have been delivered from that they begin to see the great love of God in Christ through his horrible death on the cross. The church fails to condemn anything. No one wants to be thought of as negative. The theory is that we already do live in a negative society. To tell people about negative things like judgment compounds the problem. Whose problem? The media-certified, respectability-seeking Christian. It's good that medical doctors don't treat the diseases they deal with in this way. A while back I burned my leg in a grease fire. When I went in to see the doctor, he said that it was a bad burn and I would have to have special therapy. The treatment was the most painful experience of my life. They had to scrape the dead skin away every other day. I needed to take my medicine, as the saying goes, and I needed for my doctor to tell me exactly what I needed, whether I liked it or not. If he hadn't, I would have lost my leg. And that was just a grease fire. It only affected my leg. The church is in a similar position, only it speaks to a society that is on fire with the judgment of God, a society that is eaten up with sin. There can be no soft message. It has to be hard because we live in a hard society. 
The message of Christ is wonderful. It is the answer for our dying world. But it is part of the church's job to warn society, like Jonah, that it will be judged if it doesn't repent. The cause-effect relationship should be pointed out. Man sins and judgment comes. It's that simple. What preachers want today is to be left alone to preach soft-core salvation. Hardcore salvation implies hardcore judgment. So, is AIDS a direct judgment of God? You bet. Is there any hope? An answer? Certainly. The gospel is the good news that Christ has died for sin and has overcome the judgment of God through his resurrection. And the resurrection can bring physical healing. It can even bring it to AIDS victims. There's a way out institutionally. The medical experts say there is only one way out. Monogamy. One man, one woman, permanently, till death. Not from AIDS. Do they part? The church refuses to speak with as clear a voice as the medical experts. What will it take to get the church to speak with a clear voice? An outbreak of AIDS? What will it take to get Christian parents to pull their children out of the public schools? An outbreak of AIDS? I can hear the excuses. Look, there hasn't been a reported case of AIDS on campus in over a month. And besides, our Charlie is making straight A's. Sorry, Charlie. The church will have to start by telling the world that sin is the issue. America is in great sin. The state is in great sin. The church is in great sin. Family life is in great sin. And it will all be destroyed through disease, war and any number of appropriate methods if repentance does not come. If the church proclaims this message, society will change. As far as I'm concerned, it's as though God is sending these judgments and waiting for his church to speak. If it does, people will once again begin to listen. The state will listen. The family will get its trusteeship back. Sacraments. The second thing the church needs to do is to take the sacraments seriously. Why do I imply that it doesn't? Most churches only take communion four times a year. Scripture indicates that it should be taken often. When Paul went to Troas, Luke tells us, quote, Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued the message until midnight. End quote. Acts chapter 20 verse 7. The New Testament church had communion every week. But what does communion have to do with how the church affects the world? Remember what Paul told the Corinthians. He said that communion provides a context for the church to judge itself, that it might not be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. When the church takes communion and it is in sin, then its members are sickly and they die. That's what the Bible says, quote, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and some sleep. End quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. What this really means is that sinfulness brings judgment from the world. To be judged 
means inevitably to be judged by the world. Therefore, I have to conclude that the opposition of the state is directly related to sin in the church. That's right. If the church had its affairs in order, the state would change. But God deals with corruption in the church by sending outside opposition and persecution. This is one of his tried and true methods for dealing with, quote, sin in the camp, end quote. When Israel entered the Promised Land and conquered Jericho, it was told not to take anything from one city. One man named Achan disobeyed. Israel could not win a battle until Achan was dealt with. Joshua chapter 7. All through Israel's history, we see this same thing. Eventually, God brings the Assyrians and Babylonians, tyrannical states, down on the Israelites because of sin in the camp. When we come to the New Testament, a story to which I've already referred leaps off the page. The account of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 following. In the same chapter, Luke records how the church was meeting much opposition. Again, the principle being that when there is sin in the camp, the church is persecuted. What does communion have to do with all this? Communion is just that, communion with Christ. When the church communes properly with him, it is not condemned with and therefore by the world, but until it sees its sin for what it is, it cannot adequately deal with it, that is, purge it and get rid of it. But the week your church restores weekly communion, watch out. Communion requires self-judgment. Weekly communion requires weekly self-judgment. Those whose sins condemn them are flushed out, and usually quite rapidly. The pressure of self-judgment is like popping a boil. If it isn't removed first by internal healing, it will make a mess when it gets loose. The church that doesn't stand ready to excommunicate and do it systematically will be torn apart by the effects of weekly communion. No, this isn't true of long-dead liberal churches. Weekly communion doesn't bother them. All the people on the inside are spiritually weak or sleeping, so God doesn't bother with them anymore. They don't suffer explosions. They just fade away. Healing. Paul makes one other important connection to communion. Healing. How so? Paul says, quote, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. End quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Health is tied to the sacrament. Therefore, weekly communion leads to a healing ministry for the church. How important is a healing ministry? We can learn from our charismatic brethren on this point. Healing is tied to sacramental communion with Christ. The church's message ought to be that there is healing in communion with Jesus. Of course, this is not true in every case because sin is still present in the world. But certainly, Paul makes this kind of connection to the Corinthian church. So does James. He says, quote, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the leaders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. End quote. James chapter 5 verses 14 to 16. James emphasizes dealing properly with sin just the way Paul did. Healing is a part of a vital ministry of the church connected to communion with connected to communion with Christ. But how does healing affect the rest of society? Show me a church that heals the sick and you'll find an influential church in society. Let's face it, if the church healed people, then society would come to its side. So would the state. In the Roman Empire, there was a bishop sent to a certain town. He was bitterly opposed by the town's officials. One day a plague hit the community. A city official's daughter got the disease. He had heard that this bishop could heal, so he brought his daughter to the church. By the grace of God, the girl was healed. Guess what happened? Virtually the whole town converted. So, the second thing the church can do to change society and to put trusteeship of the family back into the hands of parents is to implement weekly communion. Discipline. Third, the church can change society through discipline. What does church discipline have to do with changing the state? Paul gives the answer, quote, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge the angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who is able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. End quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Paul basically says that the church is supposed to judge the world. The church is the final institutional judge, not the state, but the church. More important, Paul rebukes Corinthians because they are not disciplining their own members. They aren't settling their own problems, so trouble in the church is spilling out into society and allowing the state to intervene. The bottom line is that the state gets control and judges the church, tantamount to judging Christ. Church discipline is a powerful weapon against the state. It says to the government, quote, We're a separate kingdom. Leave us alone. How does church discipline work? Listen to the words of Christ. Quote, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, 
it will be done for them, for my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. End quote. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Here's the principle of binding we talked about at the beginning of the chapter. The church can bind someone over and out of the congregation. Is this unloving? No. The Bible says that discipline is a supreme act of love. The writer to the Hebrew states, quote, And you have not forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For who the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. End quote. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. If this is true of the if this is true of God, how much more should it be true of the church? Love is not contrary to discipline. Both go together. But the passage in Matthew lays out specific guidelines. One, go privately. Two, then go with witnesses. Three, then take it to the whole church. How is this done? When the third stage of discipline is reached, the officers of the church should be brought in. They represent the church and are the ones to handle the tell it to the church. It may be that they will have to set up court and function like judges, just as Paul said in the 1 Corinthians 6 passage. If a guilty decision is reached and the person is still unrepentant, then for his good and the well-being of the church, he must be put out. But notice very carefully that the passage above says that the one who is cast out of the church is to, quote, be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, End quote. Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Why doesn't the passage say the individual is a heathen? The church rules judicially, not infallibly, meaning the excommunication hands over the guilty person to Satan, but the person might still be a believer. By being declared excommunicate, however, he is forced to face his eternal consequences if he does not repent. He is judicially dead and in the process of being brought back to life. Also, excommunication is only binding if the church acts according to scripture. If the church is wrong, then the excommunication will not take. In either case, discipline is a legal declaration. Discipline is for the good of the church and society. Remember, Paul says that the failure to have church courts invites the state to put its court over the church. The reverse is also true. When the church handles its own discipline, it shows the state its boundaries. That's probably why the state wants to interfere with church discipline. A couple of years ago, a church in Oklahoma excommunicated an unrepentant woman who was living in open adultery with a town official. She turned around and sued the church. The church lost in court. Why? The state doesn't want a disciplining church because a disciplining church becomes influential in society. It becomes powerful enough to tell the state to stay out of the family and church matters that are none of its business. Church discipline is just as powerful. But what if the state continues to try to stop church discipline? 
Is there anything churches can do? No, there is another phase of discipline that can be put into effect. Imprecatory Psalms The church, as an institution, is not allowed to use carnal weapons against the state. But this doesn't mean the church is defenceless. God gives his people the most powerful weapon on earth, more powerful than atomic or any other kind of carnal power. He gives the church the imprecatory psalms. An imprecatory psalm is a kind of psalm that is a prayer of malediction, speaking against evil to be called down on the enemies of the church. Psalm 83 is a good example. Here is another. Quote, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say, my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comfort delights my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defence, and my God the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord shall cut them off. Psalm chapter 94, verses 1 to 23. The author begins this psalm with the very simple request that God would punish the wicked, the enemies of the kingdom of God. Is it right for a Christian to pray this way? Did not the Lord tell Christians to, quote, pray for those who persecute you, end quote. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. First, Paul tells Christians to pray the Psalms, all of them. He says, quote, speak to one another in Psalms and hymns and other spiritual songs, end quote. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. So, the New Testament definitely wants God's people to pray the imprecatory Psalms. But what about Jesus' comment? Second, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, end quote, but he is specifically referring in that context to personal enemies, not necessarily enemies of the church. Besides, the Psalms give us the actual prayers to be prayed, even if he is talking about enemies of the church. The imprecatory Psalms are what the church should pray, but keep in mind that discipline is judicial. In other words, the destruction of the wicked comes one of two ways. Actual destruction and conversion. That's right, God could destroy the wickedness of the state by converting it. He certainly did this to the Roman Empire under Constantine. So, I encourage you to try to get your church to pray the imprecatory psalms, even in the regular worship service as a congregation. The psalms, remember, are supposed to be the prayers prayed by the church. We're not to use these against our personal enemies. These are enemies of the church. Church discipline in the maledictory and inner church forms is powerful. If the church would use these 
our world would change. Our society would leave the family alone and let the church be its guardian. Marie Norris of the Valley Christian University in Clovis, California, illustrates the power of imprecatory psalms. He has been opposing pornography for years. Although he's an educator, he's an expert at fighting immorality. Cities and church groups regularly call him in to lead their local campaigns against pornography. His success rate is phenomenal. He claims that if his eight steps are followed, pornography can be stopped in any situation. What's his secret? I don't know what he would say, but I think his success rate is due to one of those eight points that advocates the use of imprecatory psalms. Usually the war against pornography boils down to a handful of decadent individuals who stand in the way of morality. Murray argues that, above all else, pray that God would remove whoever stands in the way. Pray that they would either convert or be directly removed by God. The results are powerful. Almost without exception, when an imprecatory prayer has been prayed, the antagonists against decency have retired, gotten sick, sometimes terminally ill, been beaten at the next election, or died. Like God's covenantal signs of baptism and communion, however, the imprecatory psalms cut both ways, at those who prayed against, and at the spiritual weakness of those who pray them. They are like hand grenades. If you don't intend to throw them, don't pull the pins. Summary I have presented what the church can do to change society. Three points were made. One, I call for true prophetic preaching, the kind that challenges society. It's the kind of preaching that proclaims and calls down the judgment of God. Two, I pointed out that faithful weekly communion would keep the church from being condemned by the world. And if the world gets off the church's back, freedom comes to the family especially the families in the church. Three, I said that church discipline distances the state from the church. It's only when the church fails to discipline its own members that the state can gain access. God says the church will judge the world, that is, if it disciplines its members. Also, I explained a weapon of discipline, the imprecatory psalms, that the church can use against the state. James says, quote, You do not have because you do not ask, end quote. James chapter 4 verse 2. Isn't it time we ask God to put down the enemies of the church by destruction or conversion? The time has come. If the church doesn't respond with at least these three plans of action, then our society will lose, we will lose, and our children will lose, and the church will certainly lose because, quote, Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. End quote. First Peter chapter four verse seventeen.